We are going to move into a time where we open God's Word this morning. So if you have your Bible, turn it to Daniel chapter 2. We are continuing on. This is our second week in our series where we're going through the book of Daniel in its entirety, verse by verse, front to back. And what's happening in Daniel, if you missed last week, here's the Coles Notes crash course refresh on Daniel. It's an Old Testament book. It was describing events that took place about 2,600 years ago. Somebody say that's an old book. It's an old book. Daniel was a young Jewish man uh, during one of the darkest times in the history of the nation of Israel, during what was called the exile to Babylon. The Jewish people were literally uh, taken captive, deported from their homeland, sent away. They had to walk over 500 miles to this foreign place called Babylon. Babylon was a foreign place, a pagan place, a godless place, a, a crazy, wild culture. It was not comfortable. It was not pleasant. It was not home. It was not godly. And and we said last week that Babylon is not just a place that used to exist, it's a spirit that still exists now. Do you remember that from last week? The spirit of Babylon, we said, is an evil, demonic spirit whose goal is to fix your allegiance. It's all about allegiance and who you worship and who your king is. Fix your allegiance on the kingdom of Satan rather than the kingdom of Jesus. And the spirit of Babylon is hard at work today. We are in Babylon right now, spiritually. You look around and the place around is just a mess and the culture is a mess. You say, what in the world happened? Well, I'll tell you what happened. You missed the flight attendant coming on saying, welcome to Babylon, because that's where we are right now. Now, if you are wondering and waiting for common sense to prevail in the culture, don't hold your breath, okay? It doesn't in Babylon. It likely won't in Babylon. So here we are as Christians, as God's people, living in this mess, this culture, this godless era. And so as a believer, what are we supposed to do? And as a believer, where does our hope come from? That is what the book of Daniel is all about. Still with me? All right, so Daniel chapter 2, we pick this up, and it says this. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, anyone learn how to spell that yet? Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. That sounds like some of you guys who don't sleep very well at night, just saying. See, it's biblical. I don't know. His spirit was troubled, his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. So he seems to realize this isn't just some weird, random old dream. You guys know how dreams work? Sometimes they're super weird. Sometimes you wake up and you say, what the heck was that? Why did I just dream that? And you brush it off and you move on. That's not what Nebuchadnezzar's dream was like. He's obviously troubled by it. He's bothered by it. And he seems to know that it's kind of not normal and maybe a supernatural-ish kind of dream. That's why he calls in all the spiritual people, right? The sorcerers and the magicians and all this. And uh, he, says, it says, uh, he said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, sidebar, from this point to the end of, I think it's chapter 7, this whole book was originally in Aramaic and not in Hebrew, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will show the interpretation. Seems like a reasonable request, right? You want us to tell you what your dream means? Let's start by you telling us what the dream was. But 
The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, the word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you get that? You got to tell me both of those things. And if you don't, you shall be torn limb from limb and your houses shall be laid in ruins. So, I mean, I'm no doctor. I'm no psychologist, but for Nebuchadnezzar, I don't know. He seems a bit like zero to 60 very quickly, right? He seems a bit frantic, bipolar. I don't know what his issue is, but he's very intense. Houses laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said to him, let the king tell his servants the dream and we'll show you its interpretation, right? They're bargaining, they're bartering with them. They're realizing, oh, I don't think we know how to do that. So let's like try to strike a deal with them, right? The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time. You're stalling, right? Parents, you've seen your kids do that. Because you see that the word for me is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. That verse kind of stood out to me, kind of interesting. Nebuchadnezzar obviously doesn't trust these guys fully, right? He seems to know, you're going to tell me things that aren't even true just to save your own hide, right? And as a sidebar, this is not what Daniel 2 is primarily about, but let this just be a lesson for us. It matters who you allow to speak into your life, right? Who are you surrounded by in your life? What people do you take advice from and cues from and listen to? Who has influence over you? It matters. Because, well, A, if you have nobody around you and you're trying to do the lone wolf thing, that's not going to work. You can't do it by yourself. You're going to come into things like Nebuchadnezzar that you don't understand. And what is this? And it's really beneficial to have people around you to support you in that. But also, if you've got the wrong people, who are surrounding you, and you feel the heat when it's turned up onto you and you're looking for advice, not only are they not actually going to be able to help, they're going to lead you down a bad road. That's not good for you. So it matters who you're surrounded by. You ought to have good, godly people in your life as believers who you can trust uh, in situations kind of like this one. Anyway, that was a sidebar. Therefore, tell me the dream, and then I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asked is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. So this, they sort of get this right. They identify this as an impossible thing for any human to do. This is a God-sized problem. Where they were wrong is... But the gods aren't here. There's no gods around. They can't help you. Well, as we're going to see, God actually is here, and God actually can help you, the true God, the living God. But I continue. uh, It says, because of this, the king was angry and very furious. He's not just a little furious. He's very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. Very intense person, Nebuchadnezzar. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Because if you remember at the end of chapter one, Daniel and his friends are identified as these wise people and Daniel could interpret dreams and all these things. So they get looped in with all the false you know, people here, all the magicians, all the false spiritual people. And now it's real, right? Now it's not just someone else's problem in someone else's kitchen. Now they're coming for Daniel. They're coming for his friends. 
Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Still good here so far? Making sense so far? Okay, we'll keep reading then. It says in verse 17, Daniel went to his house. Here's where it really starts heating up now. Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Rakshak, and Benny. Remember we talked about that from Veggie Tales? His companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. He answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness. The light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Daniel brought, or Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, his Babylonian name, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, look at his answer. He says, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in your bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this, that's called the future, and he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. A lot going on, right? Three things about that text from verse 17 to 30 that we just read. The first thing is this, very simply, God moves in Babylon. God moves in Babylon, right? The spirit of Babylon, we said last week, it's all about uh, pride and idolatry and other gods, other kingdoms, other allegiances than to Jesus. It's I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to do what's right in my own sight. It's really easy being in Babylon, such as we are, such as Daniel was, it would be really easy sometimes to look out and say, what is going on? Where is God? Right? And a lot of people have that objection to Christianity in the first place. If there really was a God, why is everything so bad in the world? Right? You've heard this. You've all heard this. But God, in this account, in Daniel 2, in the midst of Babylon, he clearly reveals himself. Clearly. He 
is a revealer. That's part of God's character, right? Some people have this misconception that, kind of like the Chaldeans did, well, the gods, their dwelling is not with flesh. Like, what do I have to do with God? And what does God have to do with me? I don't know. He lives in heaven and he's sitting on a cloud or some weird thing like that. You know, you see in the TV shows. But he really has no bearing and no influence and no, no action on the earth. Well, that's not true at all. God reveals himself all the time to people. Just like you see here in Daniel chapter 2. You might ask, okay, well, why does God reveal himself to people? Well, it's because, oh, we sung about this this morning. It's because he loves you. It's because he has a life for you. God is not just some distant heavenly figure that has no concern or care for what happens on the earth. He loves you. He made you. He has a life for you. And that life, we've talked about it, oh, till I'm blue in the face, we've talked about this here at our church. The life that God has for you is all about walking in relationship with him. It's doing life with him and for him. And everything that happens to you, the good, the bad, and the ugly, it all happens in the context of Yeah, but my hope is not in the world. It's in Jesus, and I'm walking with him, and he is my compass. He is my north star. He is my guiding light. That's the life God has for you. That's why he reveals himself to you, because he cares, and he wants that for you. Now, God can reveal himself in many different ways. Well, he can do whatever he wants, honestly. God reveals himself through just natural means, we'll say, like the natural world. You can look around and employ your five senses and see, hear, taste, smell, touch, whatever, everything that's around you. That's God revealing himself. We call that general revelation, right? That you should just be able to look out in the world and see the beauty of God's creation and your mind should go, oh, right, God created this. That's God revealing himself in that way. Romans 1 talks about that. In addition, though, God can reveal himself and does reveal himself through his word. Sometimes we get the mentality of, well, this is just some old book. Why would I want to read that for? It's old. Daniel's 2,600 years old. What could that possibly mean for my life today? That's rubbish. This is the word of God. This is the living word of God. And if you are someone that does not regularly invest time in reading God's word, I'm telling you, you're missing out. I'm telling you, you're missing out on God revealing himself to you in a deeper and deeper way. You are missing. And remember, that's the life. It's knowing God. It's walking with God. You're missing out. This is part of it. You need this. You need it. That was also a sidebar. Thank you. God reveals himself too when his word is preached and proclaimed, not just like on a Sunday morning, but when the word, when the gospel is shared, for instance, God reveals himself in that. The Holy Spirit moves in that. God can reveal himself through your circumstances too. And like we see in Daniel chapter two, God sometimes reveals himself to people through dreams. You say, well, why dreams? Why wouldn't God just reveal himself to me when I'm awake, right? couple of things about that. Sometimes God uses dreams because there is no other way for people to hear. You, you got to realize there are places in the world, like for instance, in the Arab world, there are places where Jesus is forbidden, the Bible is outlawed, missionaries aren't allowed in, you're not allowed to be a Christian, talk about Jesus, any of that stuff. You could literally lose your life for it. To where in these places where Jesus and the message of Jesus is super repressed, God often shows up in dreams. You would be surprised. I don't have stats or figures on it. You would be surprised at how many people, even just in the Muslim world, who that's how they come to know Jesus. Let me even raise you one. There are at least a couple of people in our church here in little old St. John who that is their story. 
the first revelation they had of Jesus because they lived somewhere where Jesus was forbidden. It was through a dream. And God is doing this all. It's, I can't go down that road today, but it's awesome. It's awesome. Another reason why God uses dreams sometimes, let's just be really honest. Sometimes we're super thick. Sometimes, I love you. Sometimes we are so distracted. Sometimes we are so on autopilot and just mailing it in and going through the motions or maybe you're so determined to sin you're just head buried in the sand sometimes God has to use means like dreams to get your attention because you've all had dreams whether they were from God or not you've all had dreams that are super powerful and just you wake up and you go oh okay I guess that wasn't real but it feels real even after you wake up dreams are powerful obviously God knows this and that's why he uses them sometimes to get our attention but in any case he shows up to Daniel in this dream. And I think we have a bit of a clue in Daniel 2 why God did this, specifically. It says in verse 14, Daniel is presented with this situation, like, oh, by the way, they're coming to kill you. And it says he freaked out and threw his arms in the air and ran around yelling and cursing and swearing. Remember reading that? It's not what it said. It says he replied with prudence and discretion. So let that just be something for us as Christians. We're supposed to be people of faith, of trust. We read, oh, Psalm 46. We will not fear when the earth gives way. Just saying. But how oftentimes when the heat gets turned up on us, our first instinct is to freak out, right? You just completely go into stress mode and it's not a pretty sight. And you've got some damage control to do afterward. Well, Daniel doesn't do that. Daniel doesn't freak out. He keeps a level head, prudence and discretion even though the heat was on to him. In verse 17, Daniel goes and tells his godly friends. Right, You can read it there on the screen. Oh, this bad thing is going to happen? He goes to his people and makes the matter known. There it is again why it's so important who's in your corner. Good godly friends. And when he goes to his good godly friends, they pray. They pray together. It says, seek mercy from the God of heaven. That's to talk to God. That's appeal to God. That's pray to God. So he brings them right into the fight. He doesn't just tell them what's happening. He says, let's join in on this fight together. We gotta pray. Then, it says in verse 19, that word then at the bottom of your screen, I think that's really important. Then, as a result of what happened, the mystery was revealed to Daniel. You see that? I believe God gave this vision to Daniel here because Daniel responded in faith. He, the situation, the heat is on. He doesn't freak out. He trusts. See, the steps that Daniel takes are steps of faith right here, not fear. He is not governed by fear, but by faith. And it's really easy for us to say, well, yeah, I'm a person of faith. I'm a Christian. I'm a believer. But again, when the heat is on, the steps we take are often steps of fear. You, you do the freaking out. You, you panic. You're a hot mess. You sometimes take matters into your own hands to work out your own outcome rather than trusting the Lord with it. Well, that's not what Daniel does. He trusts. Okay, Lord. And he goes to his godly friends and brings them in. Being a Christian is not just about looking the part or playing the part and showing up for an event once a week on Sunday morning, though I'm very glad you're here and you look great today. You weathered the storm yesterday very well, I will say. Some of you are more tanned than when I saw you last. I don't know how that happened. Anyway, it's not just about looking the part. It's about playing the part, particularly 
when the heat is on to you. You see what I'm saying today? Your true colors are often revealed in times of trouble. So let us be a people whose first instinct, and we've got to grow into this, we grow in our trust, but let us be a people whose first instinct is trust when trouble comes, just like Daniel was. And if you're a person, I'll say this before I move on, if you're a person that maybe you've been in a situation recently where something troublesome came and you maybe didn't respond the way you ought to have responded, I couldn't possibly be talking to anybody here. If that was you, God has grace for you. Okay? This is not a word of shame and how dare you, you know, respond the wrong way. He loves you. Confess it to him. Yeah, Lord, I kind of blew that back there the other week or the other day when that thing happened. I'm sorry. Please fill me with your spirit. I, don't, I want to respond better next time. And God will do that. He'll forgive you and you can move on with your day. Is that good news? Okay, good. Here, here's the point here. We are in Babylon like Daniel was, but God still moves in Babylon. God still moves through these earthly troubles that happen in Babylon. And the heat will and does get turned up on us as believers in Babylon. You are going to come into situations of trouble. You are going to come into situations where you feel the pressure to conform to society. You're going to come into those times where it feels impossible for you to exist in the culture and also please God. I'm telling you, God can and will show up in those moments if you trust in him. God is still moving in Babylon. And again, sometimes God can do whatever he wants. God can move totally independently of us. But sometimes he moves when he sees us acting in faith. I read this verse last week, I believe, Psalm 37, 5. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will, not he might, he will act. That's for somebody today. Second thing about that section we read uh, of scripture from Daniel 2 is this. I want to talk about your worship and your witness. Somebody say worship and witness. The, the, the narrative in Daniel 2, again, right? Daniel's life is in danger. He trusts God as his first response. God moves and shows up for him. And what happens after that is that Daniel worships. He worships. Verse 19, then God showed up for Daniel, and then it says, then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. He praised, he stopped, and he worshiped. Verse 20, look what he says. Blessed be the name of God. To him belong wisdom and might. Right? He's still the same strong, wise God he's always been, even though Babylon is a godless place. Verse 21, this is deep. We'll go shallow on it today. He removes and sets up kings. That's deep. Even in this world where all these governments and entities and rulers and politicians or whatever you want to call them, right? A lot of them don't have the least bit of a thought or care about God. God is still sovereign over them. I'll tell you this. Nobody gets into office apart from the knowledge of God. Right? Nobody slips in there without God noticing. He sets up and removes kings. He gives wisdom. Right, God is the God of wisdom. And he wants to give us wisdom. Not only to help us through the situations we're in and to navigate the terrain in Babylon, but also to make us more like him because he is wise. Verse 22, he reveals deep and hidden things. We already talked about that. He revealed this mystery to Daniel. He knows what is in the darkness. Let it be known in this place today. If you're trying to scurry around in the dark in the sight of God, he sees you and he knows what you're doing. 
right? You can't hide from him. If you're like harboring some secret sin, it's not a secret, right? The other people around you might not know about it, but God is fully aware. He's fully aware of it. So just get off of that. The jig is up. Bring it into the light, right? Seriously, no use in hiding. It's dumb. Uh, the light dwells with him. First uh, John, it says that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Jesus comes along and says, I am the light of the world. He's praising him right here. In verse 23, I love this. To you, God, I give thanks and praise. You might not feel like you have a lot to give to the Lord sometimes, but you can always give that. Just that simple refrain. God, I thank you and I praise you because whatever, you showed up for me. You provided for me. You were here for me. Whatever it is, thank you, God. You can always give him your heart. You can always give him your praise. You have to notice this section of worship here from Daniel. This is not just in here for no reason. Right? We're supposed to get on, we're supposed to be reading this so we can get onto this heart of worship ourselves because here's what's happening here. As Daniel pauses to praise the Lord, as Daniel spends time in worship, as he just slows down, right? He could have run right to the king right then, right? But he stops to worship first. And as he does that, God is doing a deep work in his heart, like we're going to see in a second. But let that be known for us as well. Worship is not just some, like, why do we sing on Sunday mornings? It's not just because that's what you do in church. It's because God does a work in our hearts as we worship him. And you can worship through all kinds of other ways than singing. That's not even my point today. But the point is this, we need to be people of worship like Daniel is. Particularly when you're in Babylon and there's stuff going on in your life. Worship, stop and worship. Look at this. The, the worship that Daniel gives to the Lord, the time he spends at God's feet, this produces something in Daniel. This produces a desire to go and tell, to witness about Jesus, to witness about what the Lord has done in his life. Because look what this is. If you go to the next slide, please. Verse 27, he's now standing before the king. He says, no wise men, no this, no that. Nobody can fix your problem, but there is a God in heaven who can. You see that witness right there? He's speaking to a pagan. A pagan king doesn't know the Lord. And he says, oh, you know what your problem is? You need God. God can help you. Witnessing, see it right there? Very simple. Verse 29, he goes on. He who reveals mysteries showed you what is to be. In other words, what he's saying to Nebuchadnezzar is, by the way, this God, he actually is trying to show you the future. That's pretty cool. Just telling about the supremacy of God. And then in verse 30, Daniel says, it's not because of me, right? He deflects the praise. It's not because I'm more wise than anybody else, but I'm telling you this so that you can know the thoughts of your mind. In other words, I'm telling you this not for me, but so that God can help you, Nebuchadnezzar. God loves you. He wants to help you. He wants to show up for you and reveal himself to you. This is witnessing. We make such a to-do about, well, I can't go onto the street corner and stand up on the soapbox and preach the gospel. That's great if you do that, but God isn't necessarily asking you to do that. He's asking you to witness wherever you go, your place of work, and it doesn't have to be this weird thing. Tell other people about what God has done in your life. It's very simple, and it's very powerful, and we're going to see in a few minutes that people take notice 
when that happens. But anyway, that's worship and witness. This is the pattern. Daniel's life is in danger. He trusts God. God moves. And Daniel responds by worshiping and witnessing. Let that be the rhythm in our lives as well. Capiche? Okay. Some of you like saying that with me. I like that. Third thing about that section of Scripture, then we'll move on to the next one. The third thing is this. God wants to use you to benefit others. He wants to use you to benefit others. You can see a few instances here. In verse 18, Daniel goes to his friends. Daniel could have just run to the hills when he learned that his life was in danger. Right? Looking out for number one. I'm out of here. Fend for yourself. But he goes to his friends. There was probably some risk involved in that. That would have taken a little bit of time to do that. But he goes because he cares for them. He doesn't want them to be destroyed. Verse 24, Daniel says, he goes in before the king. He says, hey, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Right? The wise men of Babylon were not Daniel's friends. They were not of his people. They were not God's people. They were not godly people. In a sense, it would have been really easy for Daniel to say, I don't really care about those guys, so whatever, come what may to them. No, He's used in sparing them. And again in verse 30, Daniel says, I'm here, Nebuchadnezzar, to tell you your dream so that you can have peace of mind, so that you can know the thoughts that are in your mind. Here's my point. Here's my point. Your life as a Christian is not just about you. I'm not sorry to tell you that. It's not even just about you and Jesus either. It's primarily that. You can't get around the Jesus bit, but it's not, oh, it's just me and Jesus, and I do church better when it's out in the woods, and it's, yeah, doesn't work. It's always Jesus, others, and you. And God has put you, each one of you, each one of us in positions in your life right now where you can use the gifts you've been given, the resources you've been given, maybe the time you've been given, the relationships and influence that you have with people. He wants you to use those things to bless and benefit others and point them toward him. Right? I just thought of this right now. Matthew 5, 16. Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works, the things that you do, and they will glorify your Father who is in heaven. What you do matters. Being a blessing to other people matters. It's not just about you. Make sense? Okay. Don't know who that was for. It was for somebody. Here's the point on all those three points right there. God is still God in Babylon. You and I are in Babylon, and we need to take heart today because God has not changed. God is on his throne. He is alive and well. He is at work. He is moving. So don't be discouraged, okay? And us being in Babylon does not change not only who God is, it doesn't change what God wants for us or what God wants us to do. He wants us, while we're in Babylon, to worship and witness and be a blessing and a benefit to other people. Still with me? Okay. Time for a drink. We're changing gears. I, oh, I love, I love this next section of Daniel 2. I love it. Okay, changing gears a bit. This is where we dip into one of the parts of Daniel that's prophecy. Somebody say prophecy. There's a lot of prophecy in Daniel where he was foretelling and forecasting what was going to happen in the future. Daniel 2, oh, you know what? I'm going to just read it. I'm just going to read it before I float away. Okay, so now we're going to, this is, okay, shut up, Braden. Daniel says, you saw, O king, this is his dream, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, 
its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold, all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floor, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. I was going to make a Hurricane Lee joke about the wind, but it was too soon. Sorry. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory, into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. By the way, this isn't saying, oh, Nebuchadnezzar's like a god. No, it's just saying he was in a position of supreme prominence on the earth. He was the top dog among men on the earth, biggest king on the earth at the time making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom strong as iron because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. As the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. And as you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut by a from a mountain by no human hand, and then it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation, sure. Some of you, okay, cool, okay, please do that, okay. It's funny, some of you are super pumped, and some of you are like, what in the blazes did I just read? What on earth was that? We're going to unpack it, don't worry. But again, I'll just emphasize, God showed up to Daniel. He revealed him that dream in that grade of detail, and what a dream. What a prophecy. We are going to unpack this here this morning. So in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, it says he sees this image. I don't know if it's like a statue. It doesn't really go into detail about exactly what it looks like. It doesn't really matter. But this image represents something. You need to understand in dreams, when we're talking about Bible literature dreams, there are often, uh, there's often a lot of symbolism in them, things that represent something else, okay? So don't get too hung up on the image, the statue thing. Pay more attention to what it represents, okay? It says this image represents earthly kingdoms and kings, right? It says that this image was mighty and it was bright and it was powerful, right? kings and kingdoms of the earth and nations and empires of the earth all across history have been very powerful at different times and kings and kingdoms have risen up and this here talks about just that it says in verse 32 this image this statue thing had a head of fine gold it goes on to say in verse 38 that nebuchadnezzar is that head of gold 
the kingdom of Babylon is that head of gold. Oh, stay with me, please, now. This is good. The head of gold on this image, on this statue, represents the Babylonian Empire and King Nebuchadnezzar. If you go to the next slide, please. I don't know whether you can read that, but put your double readers on. This is a map of the Babylonian Empire when it was at its biggest. Now, I don't know if you're a map person. I am, but I'll contain my enthusiasm a little bit. That's a fairly big area. Down at the bottom, that goes down into what's now Saudi Arabia. Over on the right, you're into Iraq and Iran. Up on the left there is like Israel, and it goes into Turkey. It's a big area. The Babylonian Empire, as you see right here, this is history. You can look all this up. And write this down if you're taking notes, by the way. The Babylonian Empire ruled and reigned from 626 B.C. to 539 B.C. Daniel took place, the beginning of the writing of Daniel was about 605 B.C., so right in there. That was the Babylonian Empire, and it at the time was the biggest empire that had been seen on the face of the earth. They were mighty. He's the head of gold. It goes on, though, to say there's also on this image, a chest and the arms of silver. And it's talking about another kingdom. And this other kingdom represents the Medo-Persian kingdom. Somebody say Persian kingdom. You can see on the map. Oh, I'm having fun with the maps. Yeah. That's, That's really big. This was the Persian Empire that came along after the Babylonian Empire. They ruled and reigned on the earth from 550 B.C. to 331 B.C., so like 220 years-ish, if my math is at least in the right ballpark. And you can say, see, they had taken on far greater amounts of territory. That's like everything that was in Babylon and a lot more. That's the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire, uh, they were known for having complex road systems. And fun tidbit for you, they are believed to have been the first nation on the earth that had a centralized, organized post system, postal service. So Canada Post originated in Persia, I guess. There you go. So if you get your mail late, that's who you can blame. I don't know. Now, it's interesting. It says in verse 39, the kingdom that will arise after Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon is inferior to his kingdom. You say, wait a second. That's like way bigger than Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. There's a lot of uh, interpretations about that. One of the, the things that scholars put forth is that it's inferior to Babylon in the sense that Nebuchadnezzar was like the absolute monarch of like much of the known world at the time. And he ruled with an iron fist and he alone was ruler. In Persia, they still had kings, but the administration was kind of spread out more. It was a little bit of a different look. It was less of an absolute, that person is the top dog, the ruler, and whatever they say goes, almost like they're a small g god on earth. At any rate, that's the next kingdom. The, the, the next kingdom after that, I hope you're staying with me now, The next kingdom after that, it says on this image that Daniel saw, that Nebuchadnezzar saw, its middle and its thighs were made of bronze. Somebody say bronze. This kingdom, this third kingdom represents the Greek empire. And they existed right after the Persians from 331 BC to 146 BC. And they, it says in verse 39, this Greek kingdom will rule over all the earth. Their influence is vast. So that's kind of hard to read and make sense of what's happening, but that right there was much of the known world at the time. 
And not only did the Greeks rule over all of that, their influence is immense and vast in world history. You don't realize sitting here as a citizen of Canada how much of our origins and our social order came from the Greeks. For example, they had this thing in Greece called democracy, where instead of just one king would show up and rule over everything, they would elect officials into power. Canada, we do that here too. You, you don't realize the influence of Greek thought and philosophy, even into things like medicine. The father of early medicine was a Greek. The, the whole Hippocratic oath of first do no harm and all this stuff that we still practice today, that came from the Greeks over 2,000 years ago. Their, their reign was immense. It was, from a world history nerd standpoint, you can't overlook how important the Greeks were. Incredibly important. And after the Greeks, it said there's a fourth kingdom, Verse 33, the legs and the feet of this image, of this statue that were made of iron and clay, they represent, somebody say it, the Roman Empire. Yeah, I can't even get my head around that. This was at the height of the Roman Empire, which by the way, in certain forms, the Roman Empire lasted till 1453 A.D., it's like 1,500 years that that empire existed. The ones we've just talked about were like a couple hundred years. And look at how much of the world they had control over. That's like basically all of Europe, pretty much. A lot of, like the top of Africa into Asia. That is, that's literally like mind-blowing that one empire could control all of that. And this kingdom, the Romans, it said they were as strong as iron. When the Romans showed up on the scene and they started taking names and taking territory, there was nobody before them that had been like the Romans. They were mighty. They were powerful. They were organized. They were a force to be reckoned with. And they had their way in the world. Roman culture, the Roman Empire spread everywhere. And they were super strong, not to be undone. They overthrew other nations. But it says in verse 41... This Roman kingdom was going to be a divided kingdom. Guess what happened? The Roman kingdom, the Roman empire in the year 395 AD, this is just history. This is just history. In 395 AD, the Roman empire split into two, the Eastern and the Western Roman empire. Almost like God said it would. It's going to be a divided kingdom. Well, there it was, right? That was cool, just saying. And it says, just like iron and clay, right? This image, the feet uh, and the legs were made of iron and clay. It says, it will not hold together. I'm no builder. I, I, don't ask me to build something for you. But my understanding is the materials of iron and clay, like they don't bond together. You don't use them together in construction like that. It doesn't work. They'll split. They'll crack. They'll fall. And that's what happens. That's what God says here. This kingdom, this Roman empire, is not going to be fully strong. One of the things that's interesting about Rome, if you, again, I'm going so shallow on this, you could spend hours doing this. If you look at the history of the Roman Empire, their biggest threat was not really the nations around them for a lot of their existence. It was strife from within the empire. There's probably something for the church in there, just saying. The Romans weren't often that worried about the nations that were outside the wall. They were stronger. They had all the weapons. They were powerful. They were organized. They usually just squashed other armies. But from within the kingdom, it was a divided kingdom. See, one of the reasons scholars speculate is because a lot of these places that the Romans took over, you know, say down on the bottom left, 
versus someplace on the top right. These would have been places before the Romans showed up, people that hated each other and were of opposing nations. And then Rome came in and said, surprise, now you're all Romans. Well, those different people groups that were now Romans, it's not like they're magically just going to start getting along. So there's infighting, there's strife within. Then there's a fifth kingdom described in Daniel 2. This would be God's kingdom. It says in verse 34, in the midst, in the wake of all of these earthly kingdoms being set up, and they're going to look this way and that way, while all that's happening, it says a stone was cut out by no human hand. So this kingdom that he's going to talk about, this does not have the same earthly origin as all those other kingdoms. This is of heavenly origin. It says that this stone struck the image and broke it in pieces, smashed it to smithereens is the English translation, right? And no trace of it was found anywhere. In other words, what he's saying is this kingdom that he's talking about conquers all other kingdoms. It's greater than all other kings and kingdoms. It says in verse in verse 35, this stone became a mountain and it filled the earth, right? The, the reality of this king and this kingdom is going to be global. It's not just in this one isolated place over here. It's everywhere on all the earth. In verse 44, it goes on to say, the God of heaven is setting up this kingdom. This is God's kingdom we're talking about right here. And it says, it shall stand forever. So not only is it eternal uh, not only is it heavenly in origin, it's eternal in nature. It's not going away anytime soon like all the kings and kingdoms of the earth. And this kingdom has a king and his name is Jesus Christ. It says right here that a stone was cut from no human hand. I'll just remind you, one of the things Jesus was called was the stone that the builders rejected and he's become the cornerstone. Jesus is the king of this kingdom of heaven. And this kingdom of Jesus was ushered in through his coming to the earth, through his dying on the cross to pay for our sins, and through his resurrection from the grave. In other words, the kingdom is here now, but it's not all the way here yet. Right? This language of it's going to crush everything under its feet, you're like, well, I haven't seen that yet. Oh, it's coming. It's coming. You see, that's the reality of Jesus' kingdom. It's been ushered in in part. The, the power of Jesus is at work now. It's on display right now. You guys are an example of that. Jesus has saved you as, as a Christian. He has transformed you. He has changed you. He has saved you, given you salvation, seated you in heavenly places. That's the power of God. That's the spirit of God. That's the kingdom of God at work in your life, right? That's all of our stories as Christians. But the fullness of the kingdom of Jesus is not ushered in until the end when Jesus comes back. You want to read about that? Jesus is coming on the clouds and every king in every kingdom will bow down before him. I'll remind you, Philippians chapter 2 says that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Is that happening in the world right now? No, but it will happen. Even for people who formerly did not even believe or want anything to do with him, every knee is going to bow because Jesus is King of all kings and Lord of all lords. Amen? Amen. I got to just point something out to you. All that stuff, all that history, all that prophecy, I happen to think it's pretty cool. It was prophesied about around 605 B.C., 2,600 years ago. And all of that prophecy was pointing toward things that were going to happen in the future. And guess what? 
It all happened exactly the way it was prophesied to happen. Every bit of it. World history, even hundreds of years after Daniel spoke those words, world history unfolded exactly like he said he would. He said there's going to be this king of Babylon, that's you, Nebuchadnezzar, and after you there's going to be this other king, the Persians. Well, if you look at the world history, it's not, it was the Babylonians, and then we had a long pause, and then someday down the road it was the Persians. No, it's one after the other. The Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans. And furthermore, it says, in talking about the Romans in verse 44, it's says, in those days, in the days of those kings of Rome, God will set up a kingdom. So it was predicted that Jesus was going to be born and live and die and rise during the rule and reign of the Romans. Guess what happened? Exactly that. That was hundreds of years later. This is God. You have to understand, God is not just God in church on Sunday morning. God is not just God when you say a prayer around the supper table. He is literally, I cannot, I cannot stress this enough, He is literally God over world history. He is sovereign over it all. That is the God who we serve. And if He was God over world history past, we can be sure and confident that He's God over our future too. That is where our hope comes from. Yes, please. Thank you, Jesus. Yes. This God, this Jesus, this, this one to whom the kingdom belongs, this is where we take our heart from. This is where we take our courage from. Because yes, we exist in this corrupt, fallen, rough Babylon right here. It's rough. You all know this. But I want to tell you something today. The spirit of Babylon wants to say to you, I've got you now. You're in the desert now. You're toast now. Here's what the spirit of God wants us to understand today. Babylon is nothing. Babylon is absolutely nothing. It's this false fleeting kingdom that's currently set up on the earth. It's nothing compared to the kingdom of God. And the things that we face when we're in Babylon, these are but light and momentary affliction compared to what we're going to see when the kingdom of Jesus comes in full force. This is nothing, nothing at all. All this longing and groaning for things to be better and God, oh, please come and show up. Even sometimes we say, God, I just want to be with you. I just want to go to where you're at. Listen to me. All of this will be fulfilled when Jesus comes back and ushers in the fullness of his kingdom. And I would remind you, if you're a Christian, this is the kingdom that you're a part of. This is not some foreign, distant, detached thing. You are a citizen of heaven. You are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven as a Christian. Furthermore, the Bible says one day you're going to rule with Christ in this kingdom. Like Babylon is nothing. Take heart today. Jesus is on his throne. This is nothing in Babylon. It's going to get better. Jesus wins. Amen? That, please clap for him again. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Yes. Got a few verses left. By the way, there's lots more prophecy in Daniel. Don't think that's the end of that, friends, today. Oh, friends. Last few verses of this text in Daniel 2 uh, talks about what, we're, what we ought to do in response. I'm just going to read the last three or four verses here. After Daniel reveals the, uh, the dream and its interpretation, it says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, paid homage to Daniel, and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, 
for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the fairs of the province of Babylon, excuse me. But Daniel remained at the king's court. We could say a few things about that. I just have two things to share with you about that. The first thing is this. When God moves, other people take notice. Right here, God showed up. He provided this dream and this interpretation of the dream. And Nebuchadnezzar says in response, Wow, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. He takes notice of him. And I would just remind you something. This is why your witness is so important. Because yes, God might reveal himself to someone independently of you. Awesome. However, sometimes God waits to reveal himself to someone or show up in a situation. He waits to see if we're going to act in faith or not. So when, when, when we act in faith and God subsequently shows up and we get excited about it and tell other people about it, other people are going to say, okay, this God thing, maybe it does mean something. Your witness matters. And also your faith matters. Because if God is waiting for his children to act in faith before he moves and shows up for us, what's going to happen if, he doesn't, if we don't act in faith? He might not show up. And don't get me wrong, God always provides, he always comes through, we always get what we need, yes, yes, yes. But you see what I'm saying here. This is important. And God always gets the credit in this. But again, your faith your trust, your witness, they matter. The second thing is this. I'll say this just kind of by way of warning and then I'm done. Just because someone takes notice of God doesn't mean they're actually a believer. So it's awesome. Like, I mean, God is revealed and we witness about him and here he is. And sometimes people will say, wow, that's awesome. This God, this sounds awesome. Okay, obviously we'd rather them say that than ah, I don't want that right? But we need to be careful to check our hearts. You see, Nebuchadnezzar here, he gives the lip service. He says, your God is Lord of Lords and God of Kings. And blah, blah. It looks like he's saying the right thing, doesn't he? It looks like he's responding in genuine faith, doesn't it? However, we're going to read in the coming chapters, he just goes right back to being the same Nebuchadnezzar he always was. It's really easy for people to give lip service to the Lord. Oh, I'm a Christian. Yes, pray, praise the Lord. Oh, yes, I grew up in a Christian home. I'm good. Yeah, that's, that's good. But then you just go back and you do what you've been doing all along. You don't really respond in any kind of faith or any kind of surrender to the Lord. And I'm saying, God, if that's you, God wants more than just a mental nod about him in your life. God doesn't want you to just say, oh, yeah, I believe that there's a God and that he exists. The Bible says even the demons believe that and they shudder. I want us to be better off than the demons, okay? Jesus is not calling you just to make a mental note of his existence. He's calling you to surrender to him in faith. He's calling you to give your heart, give your life to him, to accept what he's done for you, to believe in him, to call on his name, to repent of your sin, to turn from your old ways and, and start walking with him in newness of life. He's calling you. And I'm talking to us as Christians daily to surrender to him as well. We don't want to be people that are just flapping our jaws. 
We want to be walking the walk too.